Right, John. Oh, right, okay. Share screen, there we go. Uh, which one do I want? Where's it gone? Oh, PowerPoint slicer, that's the one. Okay. So tonight, then, we are going to be looking at Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. I guess the first thing to do probably is just to read it. So let's read it together, shall we? First one. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation. And meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure that I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Oops, I never met lost it. Oh dear. That's a bit silly, isn't it? Hang on a second. Where's that window gone? There we are. That's better. Ah, yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, that's Peter, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. Well, some commentators uh, in the past have described reading Galatians, especially at the start of it, as being like listening to somebody else on the phone. <laughs> somebody you maybe don't know very well and you don't understand too much what they're talking about and you can only hear one end of the conversation. All you know is that this person is a little bit sort of worked up um, because he keeps on saying things which don't really lead on to the next thing. And uh, there's all sorts of things tumbling out of his head onto the phone conversation and uh, making sense of it can be quite difficult. <laughs> you need to know the backstory really to make much sense of what's going on in, in these first few chapters of Galatians. As no doubt you know, the churches of Galatia, and we're not dead sure where that was, but it was somewhere like uh, the region of Turkey that Paul came from, the, 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 the south of Turkey, the churches of Galatia um, had started out really well, but they'd lost a little bit of their enthusiasm because teachers had come in there uh, decrying the Apostle Paul, saying that his message wasn't the real Christian message. And if you wanted to be an authentic Christian, then you had to be a genuine Jew. And so you had to be circumcised. You had to keep all sorts of feasts. You had to um, uh, go through all kinds of different routines in your daily life in order to prove you were you were um, a, a real Christian. And what that was basically was just a system of legalism. And it, it tied people into a, a slavery to laws and regulations, which they just escaped from many of them when they become Christians. And so they'd lost their enthusiasm. It was tailing off. And Paul says to them, you did run well. <laughs> Who's hindered you? 
like a car that was running well and now it's sputtering and, and jerking along the road and just about ready to stall and stop. The Galatian churches weren't doing that well. Now, one of the things that Paul had to do, and this is where chapter two starts out, really, is to defend himself. Because people had been saying all kinds of things about him that just weren't true. Uh, for one thing, uh, they were saying, you know, he's just cobbled this stuff together out of his own head. This gospel isn't isn't a real Christian gospel. The top people in Jerusalem now, they have very different ideas. And there were other people who were accusing him of dishonesty. And the guy's a total hypocrite. If he was in Judea, he'd be a good Jewish boy like everybody else. Out of the eye of Jerusalem, he's able to hang around with the Gentiles and uh, live life the way they do and eat food that's forbidden for Jews. But if he went back to Jerusalem, you'd see him falling in line because the guy is just a hypocrite all the way through. And uh, somebody else might say he only gets away with it because he's a complete maverick. He's a one-off. He does his own thing and doesn't care about anybody else. He doesn't care about teamwork. And so he's splitting the church because he's teaching something that real Jews and real Christians can't believe. So they were attacking his message and saying it was wrong. They were attacking his practice and saying it was inconsistent and hypocritical. And they were attacking his, his uh, uh, way of working and saying it was selfish. There was no teamwork involved in it. I think in the 10 verses that we look at tonight, Paul tries to give an answer to those things. Before we start looking at his answer, though, let's just reflect on the fact that this is actually what you need if you are going to preach effectively. For a start, you need the right message. And there are lots of churches today that don't have the right message. But even amongst those that do, there's something else that you need. And that is consistent practice. You need not only to say what the truth is, and there are many churches that are good at that, but you also need to live it out. And we're not always as good at that. But that's not all either, because churches aren't unique, independent fighting units set out, sent out to do their own little job in the uh, 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 wartime world. No, they are part of an army. We belong together. Anything that God does through the Bible, he does through believers, uh, followers of his working together. Teamwork is vital. And so we need genuine fellowship at the heart of it as well. And where are there people preaching the gospel, we need to recognize it and thank God for them and join with them as far as we possibly can so that together we can, we can, we can make things happen. Sometimes, as I say, in our modern world, you find one or all three of these things missing. Uh, right now, for example, um, on BBC Sounds, you can listen to the serialised story of uh, a girl who grew up in this church, Westboro Baptist Church in Topeka, Kansas. They've become well known across the world for their horrendous uh, manipulation of Christian doctrine. They become very famous because they picket the funerals of US soldiers and say, God laughs when an American soldier gets a bullet through his head. They, they rant against uh, uh, LGBT people. They, they're, they're against all kinds of different things. Death penalty for fags is one of the, 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 the placards you carry around. America is doomed. They believe that God's wrath is being poured out on America right now. COVID, for example, is a symptom of that. America's failing foreign policy is another one. And the end of the world is coming very soon. And Christ died to save pre-chosen sinners. You've got no way of, of, of turning to God unless he ordains that you can do. So they're hyper-Calvinist. There are all sorts of other things too. And what they've got, although it's the basis of it is a very true 
basis of faith. It's been uh, twisted into another kind of gospel entirely. And the story of Megan Phelps Roper, if you have a chance to listen to it uh, on the BBC, shows very, very clearly just how the real Christian message of hope and freedom and liberation and love is twisted into something which is very much its opposite. But it's not just the right message. You need consistent practice, too. And this guy's become even more famous this year, sadly, not for his great work in apologetics and in leading people to Christ over the, the last few decades, but because when he died, it was soon revealed that he'd been living a completely inconsistent life. And uh, on the left there, you've got part of the statement that uh, uh, RZIM, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, put out about their founder after they'd investigated his life and found what was wrong with it. And they say, it is with shattered hearts that we issue this statement. Because they found that uh, uh, he was teaching one thing and living another. And uh, all that's happened since his death has been that his reputation has been destroyed. Uh, his books have, have just stopped selling anywhere. And lots of people, sadly, who were interested in, in the Christian message because of the way that he made sense of it have walked away saying, if you can be a hypocrite like that and be a Christian, I don't want to be conned. So those two things are important. There's also genuine fellowship. And uh, I don't want to knock Hillsong, who've written many uh, great songs that you sing at great parks, but there was a documentary about that church on TV the other night, a Storyville documentary. I don't know if any saw it. And uh, it's interesting to see just how independent of anybody else they actually are. They're very proud of the fact that they now exist in 28 countries. But will they work with other churches locally? No, they pour scorn on the fact that churches that sing hymns and churches that uh, are, are old style churches have lost their life. And there's, they're, they're not uh, a place where young people can find any kind of life or reality anymore. And it's only in joining Hillsong that you can really find what God is doing today. Now, I remember the cults way back in the early 70s saying just exactly that kind of thing. And I am not accusing Hillsong of being a cult, but there are some worrying features of that program that just show how much genuine fellowship with the whole body of Christ, with other Christians, is essential if you're going to preach the message effectively. So that's what Paul was being accused of, falling down in all three of these areas. And in the chapter we've read, he produces three pieces of evidence to show that none of these things are true. You remember his message was attacked, his practice was attacked, and the way he expressed fellowship was attacked. Let's look at those three things then. The message one, for example, is in verses one to two. And this is where he brings up his first piece of evidence, the trip to Jerusalem that he and Titus and Barnabas took. We'll have a look at that in a moment. Second, in verses three to five, you read about the conflict there was over Titus. Titus was a Greek. He wasn't a Jew. And people said when he got to Jerusalem, whoa, this man needs to be circumcised. There is no way we can eat meals with him. There is no way we can shake his hand. There is no way we can be in the same room as him unless he has himself circumcised and uh, conforms to the entire Jewish law. OK, we'll have a look at that one, too. And then the third one simply is the strategic agreement that was struck between Peter, uh, James and John uh, and on the one hand and Paul and Barnabas on the other at the end of the chapter. So those three things of, of evidence, uh, Paul brings forward in the verses that we've read. And when you understand what's going on in the background and have a look at those verses, I think you can learn a few lessons from them, which are still very, very valid for us nowadays. Let's look at the first one then. 
the trip to Jerusalem. After 14 years, he says, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation. So Paul was going to um, uh, Jerusalem, not for a head-to-head meeting uh, with the early church leaders. He was going up because of a revelation. What is this? Well, you read about it in uh, Acts chapter 11. At the end of the chapter there, it says, Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there will be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. Acts says that, and it's right. We know it from history. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. Now, Paul and Barnabas were teachers in the church in Antioch when this prophecy was given. And so the last verse of the chapter says, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So uh, Paul and Barnabas go off to Jerusalem in response to a vision a vision that tells them that there's going to be a great famine in Jerusalem. And if the church there doesn't know about it, it's time you started saving money. Here's some money to get you started. So they went down to help out. That was the reason they went. They didn't go because Paul uh, had a, uh, a need to talk to the church leaders about what he was teaching to find out whether or not it was the same thing that they were teaching. But he thought he might as well do that while they were down there. And so you find Paul talking to them and he says in in, in Galatians chapter two, I went uh, up because of revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. What does he mean by that? He wanted to check out his gospel against theirs to make sure whether his was right or not? No, I don't think so, because chapter one tells us, doesn't it, that uh, he received this gospel direct from God. He was sure it was the true gospel. What he wanted to check, I think, was whether he was ahead of them or not, whether what he was teaching, which he was sure was the truth about Jesus and what Jesus had come to do, was actually what they were teaching yet or not. Because if it wasn't, then he had a lot more work to do in convincing them of the revelation that God had given them. But he found amazing. Uh, to his great satisfaction that what they were preaching was exactly the same as his. God had spoken to them in the same way. Now, there are three things I think you notice about this, this, the way that Paul did it here, that teach you how to argue. And if there is one skill, it seems to me, that a Christian needs to learn, it is how to argue with other people. Because in the church, you do have arguments. There are fallings out. There are differences of opinion. And knowing how to do it with grace and defuse arguments before they blow into massive explosions is an important skill to learn. So what did Paul do? Well, first of all, Paul kept the discussion private. He didn't go marching into Jerusalem saying, folks, I'm here to discuss theology with you. And if you don't agree with me, you're wrong. No, he came for another purpose. And he thought, well, while I'm there, I'll just take the chance to check out my theology against theirs. We'll do this in a private way um, and uh, we won't tell everybody what's going on. I did it privately, he says, before those who seemed influential. In other words, when he got to Jerusalem, he looked around and said, now who are the opinion leaders here? Who are the people whose voices you hear most in the church? Who are the folks who are shaping and molding the minds of this congregation? Let's pick them out and have a word with them and see what their understanding of the gospel actually is. So he kept the discussion private. He didn't just go into the church and say, folks, I have an announcement. If you believe what I believe, great. If you don't, (laughs) 
you're, you need to repent and sort yourselves out. No, you don't do that. If there is a, a discussion to be had, keep it as private and small scale as you can. Do you remember what Jesus says in Matthew 18 about um, if you've got anything against your brother, uh, if there's anything between you, try and sort it out between the two of you personally. If you won't listen, then you involve other people. If you still won't listen, then you involve the church. But you, you just escalate it step by step. You don't start with lots of noise. You keep it as private as you can, because that's the best way of not inflaming the situation. But second, Paul kept the discussion personal as well. He went to individuals and talked to them face to face, eye to eye. You see, many people would prefer to do it in an impersonal way. And you just need to look at some of those Christian websites that are most argumentative and obstreperous on the internet to see how a great a temptation that is. People love pontificating on social media and on websites and in blogs about how wrong their opponents are. And it's all done in an impersonal way, which doesn't cost us anything. It just means we can fulminate against our opponents, think how wonderful my wisdom is. But actually, when you've got to look into the other guy's face and say, well, OK, I can understand where you're coming from. But can you see what I'm saying, too? That's when you have real engagement, private, personal. Well, the third thing about Paul's uh, discussion was that he kept it practical. He didn't argue about academic points of theology. Instead, he talked about the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. He told them what he did. He told them what the results were. He told them how the Gentiles had understood what these Jews had been looking for for so many years. And as they heard about the practical application of what they were doing, they understood this is not an armchair theologian speaking here. This is somebody who's out there wrestling with men's hearts and minds, trying to bring them to reality. And uh, because they could see themselves in his shoes, they could see the Gentiles through his eyes, they could understand this is not some academic discussion in which we can hold different positions and it doesn't really matter. This is about the lives of people, the eternal destinies of people, and we need to take it seriously. So that's the way to argue properly, it seems to me. <laughs> and that's what uh, verses one and two are all about. And then there's verses three to five, the conflict over Titus. Because poor old Titus, who was just a younger leader in Antioch, who'd been taken along for the trip, found he was in difficulties that he hadn't expected when he got there. Hi, uh, my name's Titus. It's great to be with you in Jerusalem. Oh, yes. And which Jewish family do you come from? Well, no, actually, I'm a Greek. <laughs> and you can see them all standing back from him. And there are people who try to say, look, he's got to be circumcised. Otherwise, it's no deal whatsoever. When you look at those, those, let's just look at those verses again. Even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, says Paul, though he was a Greek, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, uh, who slipped in to spy at our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Three questions. Where did this argument come from? How did Paul respond? And why did he do what he did? Where did it come from? Well, the answer is fake Christians. People who were legalists, people who didn't rejoice to see unlikely people coming into freedom and reality through Jesus. But he just said, they've got to keep this rule, they've got to keep that rule, they've got to keep that rule. And uh, they weren't genuine Christians. They were just fakes. They were people who felt secure in the legal system. They didn't understand grace at all. 
I remember when my old dad was a prison evangelist in Scotland and people started becoming Christians in, in large numbers, boys who were in the detention centre where he held a Bible class every week. At first he'd send them uh, when they went back home again to little churches in the parts they came from, small brethren assemblies that some, in some cases hadn't seen a convert for 20 or 30 years. And he'd ring up a, uh, maybe six or seven weeks later and say, how's that lad getting on? Are you looking after him? How is he doing? And oh, Alec, he was never a Christian. You know, he still smokes and, and all kinds of things. And it was clear that from the start, those lads had been treated with suspicion. If we have him round for tea, he might rob the house. He was in prison, remember? And it was, it was heartbreaking. And it was as a result of that that my father decided, well, I'm going to send these lads to any church, wherever it is, Church of Scotland, Baptist, Pentecostal, I don't care. But if they've got an understanding of grace and a love for the young people who are coming from the, the most unlikely backgrounds and finding liberation in Christ, that's what I really want. And we've got to be careful, haven't we? That we don't become so correct that we're unable to rejoice with the angels over one sinner who repents. And that's how Paul responded. And the way he responded was just no compromise. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Because you find later on that when he starts working with Timothy, about the first thing he does with Timothy, who's half Greek, is to have him circumcised. Why is that? Well, it's because he knows that Timothy, if he hangs around with the Apostle Paul, is going to have to go into all sorts of Jewish situations. And his mother being Jewish helps him, but his dad being Greek doesn't. And if he is not obeying the Jewish law in the matter of circumcision, then those Jews aren't going to listen to him for a second. So for Timothy's job, because of the misunderstandings of outsiders to the Christian faith, not to put a barrier in the way of the gospel, Paul says, OK, you've got to be circumcised. But here it's no compromise. Nope, nothing is happening to Titus. I'm sorry. Because if you do that, simply because you think all Christians should be circumcised, what you're doing is putting a barrier in the way of people becoming Christians. And so that's got to be stopped. And so no compromise. Why did he do that? Well, he says, it's so that the uh, truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Now, Paul could be argumentative. One of my favourite verses, I think, is on, uh, on Paul's uh, visit to Philippi where uh, he's been put in prison and in the morning the uh, the uh, uh, magistrate send a message saying oh look i know you shouldn't have been in prison because there's been administrative error you're a roman citizen and uh, please no just 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 get out of prison and, and and go away you know just be very quiet go away and and then we won't say any more about it and in verse 37 of that chapter it says in the good news bible and paul said to them not likely <laughs> And Paul insisted that the magistrates came to the prison themselves, uh, let him and Silas out, shook hands with them, wished them Godspeed, took them down the Ignatian Way, the road that ran right through the marketplace where everybody in the city could see them and treated them as honoured Roman citizens. But you know why he did that? It wasn't because his dignity had been ruffled. It wasn't because he wanted anything for himself. It's because he had just begun a church in that city. And he knew that if I, that was the reputation the Christian church had, that they'd been founded by some sort of guy who was sent to prison and nobody knew what had happened to him after that point, that would be no use for them. They would have a social stigma against them from day one. But if the people remembered 
that the church had been started by somebody who was actually an honored Roman citizen, who had been uh, recognized by the magistrates and said goodbye to and shaken hands with, that would be much, much better for that new church. And so you find Paul being awkward sometimes, uh, digging his heels in, refusing to go the way that people want him to, but it's always for the good of other people. And so here it's for you. It's not because Paul can't stand to lose an argument. It's because the principle is more important than anything else. The gospel is free to everybody. There are no hoops to jump through. There are no physical actions that need to be performed. It's the gift of God. It's eternal life. And that needs to be preserved for you. Okay, that takes us on to the third thing then, doesn't it? The strategic agreement. And this is verses 6 to 10. Um, and he says, those who seemed to be influential uh, added nothing to me. They didn't shape my message. They didn't say, Paul, you've got 85% right, but here's the other 15% you've got to preach. No, the message came from God, like it says in chapter one. On the contrary, he says, when they, the influential people, and he means there, Peter, James and John, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, when James and Cephas and John perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me and said, OK, boys, you have got the Gentiles. That's what God has laid his hand upon you for. We have got the Jews. We're going to work with them. Just one thing. Only they asked me to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Now, why did these pillars of the church decide to give Paul their blessing? I think maybe if you go back to Acts chapter 12, you get the clue there. Because we read those verses where it says that they came in response to the vision, the prophecy that Agabus received. And then in chapter 12, you've got a very funny chapter, which starts about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. And you might remember that Peter gets thrown into prison there. And uh, while he's in prison, um, uh, in the middle of the night, an angel comes and says, come on, follow me. And they walk out past the guards and Peter thinks it's a dream until in the street, uh, the cold air hits his face. The angel disappears and he realizes, whoa, this is not a dream. God has really got me out of prison. And because he's, he's disappeared from prison, Herod can do nothing much about it apart from kill the jailers. And uh, then at the end of the chapter, you have Herod going up to Tyre and Sidon and uh, being acclaimed by the people sitting on the throne in his royal robes. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. And Luke says, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. We know from history it happened, but it took five days. You might think it happened immediately right there and the worms got to, to business straight away. But it took five days of agony before he died. And both Jews and Christians said this is judgment on Herod for making himself like a god. And then, you know, at the start of the next chapter, interestingly, uh, chapter uh, or at the end of chapter 12, it says, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. And then it talks about what they did in chapter 13 in Antioch. But you see how those references to Barnabas and Saul wrap right round that story. In other words, they were there in Jerusalem while this stuff was going on. And I wonder if the impact of Peter being in prison 
and then Herod dying suddenly under the judgment of God didn't have a major impact on the people in the church in Jerusalem. David Gooding, who's written a commentary on the Acts of the Apostles, well, he doesn't make that point, but he does say this. The reason for Herod's attack on some who were in the church may have been because Peter and the other apostles had recently been involved in or had approved of the breaking down of barriers between Jews and Gentiles. You remember in chapter 10, that's when Paul, uh, sorry, Peter meets Cornelius and begins to realise, yes, Gentiles can become Christians. Now, as that spreads into the church in Jerusalem, you can see how traditional Jews will start saying, whoa, we can't live with these Christians. This, this is terrible. We, we, we've got to get rid of them, stand fast against them. Otherwise, the whole thing will break down. Now that the Jewish leaders began to see what the Christian gospel really involved and what Christian holiness meant, namely the abolishing of all special Jewish, special Jewish privileges, their animosity flared up again against the gospel. And I just wonder if Peter's miraculous delivery from prison, the sudden death of Herod, which, which uh, shows just, just, just uh, how evil a man he was for the Jews to rely on to do their dirty business for them. And the whole thing that happened there just prepared the minds of Peter, James and John to say, yep, what you're saying, Paul and Barnabas, is absolutely right. The Gentiles must hear the gospel. Go to it. Anyway, there are some things you notice about this strategic agreement. And that's the last thing we'll look at tonight. First of all, Peter, James and John saw what God was doing. That's the important thing. You see, none of them, apart from Peter with Cornelius, had ever been near Gentile evangelism. They didn't know how you did it. They didn't know how it worked. They didn't know how Gentiles thought or responded. But when they heard what Paul and Barnabas were doing, they could see in them God at work. And so because they recognized that the hand of God was on them, they shook their hand, gave them the right hand of fellowship. And it's important that Christians do that, isn't it? Because sometimes God works through servants that we wouldn't choose, through ways that we just don't understand. It's always fascinated me that uh, Lord Shaftesbury, tremendous evangelical Anglican in the 19th century, one of the men of greatest compassion for the poor that uh, the, the, the Christian church has ever seen, hated the Salvation Army when it first emerged. And he said he thought it was a trick of the devil to make Christianity look ridiculous. And why somebody who was so involved in making the gospel good news to the poor couldn't see what William Booth was about. It, it's tragic. G. Campbell Morgan, when the, the Pentecostal movement began and again was, was bringing all kinds of people into a, a, a faith that they would never otherwise have found said that he thought Pentecostalism was the last vomit of Satan. And great Bible teacher though he was, I think that shows the blinkers that were on his eyes when it came to recognizing what God was doing in a context that was unfamiliar to him. And it's important that we, we, we see and rejoice with everything that God's doing around us in his name that's truly of him. Second, they trusted their brothers. <laughs> They weren't uh, experts on, on evangelism amongst the, the Gentiles. They were more concerned with the Greeks, but they perceived the grace that was given to me and gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. And uh, that the right hand of fellowship simply meant stretching out your hand, holding somebody else's in a non-socially distanced way, and uh, just uh, communicating by that simple action, you belong to me. 
and I belong to you. I identify with you and therefore I trust you to do in God's name those things that I would do if I were put in the same situation. And Christians need to trust one another. The Church of Jesus Christ, the, the biblical churches throughout the world are so splintered and jealous and suspicious of one another. It's hampered the work of the gospel for most of the 20th century. In the 21st century, we desperately need to come together and work together to see uh, the situation in this world change. But there's a third thing too, the final verse. They prioritise the poor. Only they asked us to remember the poor, says Paul, the very thing I was eager to do. And that's important, isn't it? David Shepherd, that great evangelist who was the Bishop of Liverpool and made a tremendous difference for the gospel while he was up there, um, uh, once wrote a book called Bias to the Poor, about the fact that in society after society, and in the Acts of the Apostles too, it's often those who have nothing who turn first to the gospel. And any church that aims its evangelistic strategy at the rich and the wealthy and the, 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 the self-satisfied is not going to make much of a difference. But those who recognise that the poor are where the heart of God really is and that when people who have nothing have reached the end of the rope, they're ready to turn around and accept what Jesus has to offer. Those, those churches working with those people are going to see massive growth. That's the story of the Methodist revival, isn't it? It's the story of Moody and Sanchez revival. It's the story of, of, of the, the, the great uh, revivals of uh, the 19th century and the 18th century in America. The poor are a priority in mission. Not that the wealthy don't need the gospel too, but often God starts with those who've come to the end of the, the rope, the bottom of the bucket, and have nothing to offer and know it. So that's it for tonight. Those are the three things, it seems to me, that uh, uh, Paul is presenting in this chapter to say, look, this is the real gospel. This is the way it's supposed to be. And I got it from God, not from anybody else. But I'm not setting out on my own to do something revolutionary and different. What I'm doing is God's will. And I guess in the way that we carry on in his footsteps to spread the gospel in our own day, we could learn a lot from that. Let's just pray for a second before I hand back to John. Is that okay? Let's just pray together. Heavenly Father, as we've looked at these verses very quickly tonight and tried to untangle a 2,000-year-old argument that uh, <laughs> we only listen to one side of the telephone call on, we pray that you help us take away the good things and the wise things that were done by Paul, by Barnabas, by Titus, Peter, James and John in this chapter and apply them to the way that we live out our faith today. Save our church, we pray, from ever getting the wrong message or putting the wrong emphasis on it. Save us from twisting the truth of the gospel into uh, something that enslaves people rather than liberating them. Help us too to be people who live out consistently the message that we, we, we talk about. We know we can only do that in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we pray for each person here tonight and all of the others in our church too that God's Holy Spirit will so be revolutionising us that our words and our life check out. And third, Father, we pray too that you'll help us uh, to uh, share in fellowship with every saint that loves your name and remember that we're one with them and learn from them what we can't do ourselves and show them 
what they can gain from us so that together, unitedly, we can expand the frontiers of your kingdom and see things change, even in this country, before we die. We ask it for your namesake. Amen.